This is Keep Up. I'm your host, Cynthia Dill. It's Saturday, August 13th, 2022. I'm in my Cape Elizabeth studio. It's good to be back. This week's show is called White Girl Blacklisted in Maine, and it's based on a true story, a story I'm I'm going to tell, and uh, and the reason why is because I can tell it, and I think that's about all I can do. There's context, of course, and there's a before and after story, but let's just focus in for a moment on some events that happened recently. Uh, a new Maine state housing law has been passed that will really uh, greatly impact the affordable housing and housing supply. That's what its intent is, and I believe that that's what the consequence will be of that law. I'm fully supportive of of it, by the way. I just want to stay for the re- say for the record that I support the public law that was passed, LD 2003, knowing full well that right across the street from my house, there will likely be uh, an affordable housing development that will have higher density and less restrictive parking requirements thanks to the new law, but will include low and moderate income people, which I think is good, and may include home ownership and uh Most importantly, the development will have to otherwise comply with our town center zoning law. And what I mean by that is that unlike the project Dunham Court that's up for referendum in the fall, a new project under the new law would have to have commercial space on the first floor, which is really important for those of us who live in the town center who have the vision that is set forth in the comprehensive plan on our mind, and that is a walkable village-style downtown that everybody yearns for to generate community. This property is located right on the town green. So the uh, the new state law is good. There, there's a referendum question. And and then there was the story of the canals in the Portland Press-Herald that really uh, I thought was, was moving. And and those the constellation of those three things and my involvement and relationship to all three led me to write a column. So the um, the column was, I'll give you a timeline. The, the column that I wrote, I offered it to the Press-Herald on July 26th. And it was a column that um, is about affordable housing in Cape Elizabeth in particular, about the new state law and the upcoming referendum, and also just references by way of example, because the story about the canals really made the point that I have been making all along about affordable housing. So the canals were referenced in the column that I wrote, but it wasn't the hook, it wasn't the crux. I have been talking about this issue. It just so happens that the canal story, the story of the family that's living out of a van in a rest area in southern Maine because they can't find housing. And in that story, there's three people who belong in the family, a husband, wife, and an adult daughter. And the story reports that the two women work full-time at Cabela's, and the husband makes $1,400 per month in Social Security. So we, we just know from reading the story that was reported in the Portland Press-Herald that the income exceeds $54,000 because full-time is a legal term. That means working at least 30 hours. And minimum wage in Maine is twelve seventy five. So, you know, if if, some, 
if you have two people working full-time at a minimum wage job, and these people probably make more than minimum wage, and they probably work more than 30 hours, but even just assuming that they work the bare minimum of 30 hours, which is full-time, at minimum wage, plus the $1,400 per month, this family of three that is homeless and living out of a van uh, makes more than $54,000. And the point I made in the column that I wrote that I submitted on July 26th is that that family would not be eligible in the uh, affordable housing project that has been controversial in the town of Cape Elizabeth because it wouldn't have been suitable for them because they're a family of three and a majority of the apartments that were designed in Dunham Court were one bedroom and a family of three with income in excess of $54,000 makes too much. So I just made the point that to see this is a good example of why these projects are not good. And I also then uh, went on to say why, um, you know, we, it, when it comes to following the science, um, we should follow the science because there's been recent re- economic reporting out of the town of Cape Elizabeth showing that the housing situation is far from a crisis. In fact, it's it's quite healthy and most importantly, is doing good by low-income families who have the opportunity to get in. And so a lot of people in Cape Elizabeth want to create affordable housing that offers opportunities for families to enter into the housing market and therefore, you know, earn, (laughs) you know, build up some equity and have long-term economic security. And, and, and so the, the new state law allows for low and moderate income, allows for ownership. Um, the column was about how I support the new state law and points out that this family would not be eligible in the Cape Elizabeth project. So that the gist of the column, you can go. Uh, so the next, I offer the column, um, I say on the July 27th, you know, if you're interested in the column, I can provide a source for the facts and the facts in the column are about what the Dunham Court project uh, offered and the cost of it and whether and the, and the big fact was that it was a public publicly funded project 13.5 million dollars of public funds and the, the the newspaper the assistant editorial page editor asked for a source I provided a source which was an August 31st uh, letter to the town that is on the the website from the developer that sets out, you know, literally in black and white that the affordable housing, the low income housing, I might just, that's an important point. This is low income housing, less than 60% um, of the area median income. If it says right on this document that if three people are in a family, um, they have to make below $54,000, otherwise they make too much and they would be ineligible. And it also, you know, states right in it that all the funds the source of all the funds are public dollars. Not one, not one cent of private money is being invested. So that's a big, big cost. And what we're getting was an apartment building, gigantic, that you know violates substantially the zoning ordinance as is in terms of it's forty-five feet high, ten feet higher than the local <laughs> than the existing ordinance. The footprint's bigger. The whole thing is just humongous. Um, So that the developer can make the most money, and all of almost all of the apartments are one bedroom. So I provide the source, 
on July 28th, I send an email to the paper saying, you know, is, is the source I sent sufficient? Later that day, that morning actually, I get word from the assistant editorial page editor that the source was sufficient and that uh, the paper will give me heads up when my column is going to be published. So, uh, you know, I'm, at this point I'm thrilled because, you know, there's been so much discussion about this issue and yet the position of myself and several people on this issue who have a legitimate objection to the housing project that was pitched in Cape Elizabeth have been excoriated. And and I mean excoriated. I was personally accused of racism by the housing advocate for the Portland Chamber of Commerce. Uh, but in particular, the newspaper, the Portland Press Herald, has editorialized several times, uh, several times, and has allowed the developer, Inc., to, you know, market this project and has attached an artist's rendition, this marketing, this piece of marketing that shows this beautiful building, you know, as if it's not going to have any heat pumps or, you know, acres of pavement and as if it's not going to overshadow our beautiful historic town hall that it's, you know, right in its front yard. It This thing is projected, you know, wood be right on the town green right next to the right next to the town hall um i'm excited that finally um you know the fact of the matter that this project is not like the affordable housing developments that the new state law encourages and in some senses you know requires the increased density this is a for-profit low-income housing project the one that was pitched in cape elizabeth extremely high cost, very low public benefit, and the main objection by most people in Cape Elizabeth was that the housing did not accommodate families. And we are a town of families. Seven in ten households are families. We have great schools, a lot of open space, and these apartments were one bedroom, restricted to such low income that they didn't support any of the local workforce. The biggest employer in town is, is the town, and none of the town workers, the teachers, the firefighters, the police officers, you know, the, you know, the guy at the the transfer station, these people are dedicated public servants. And if we're going to build affordable housing that we call workforce housing, they should be able to live it, but they can't live in the low income for profit, low income housing model that is pitched as the affordable housing amendments in Cape Elizabeth, because they make too much. They could live in an affordable housing development that the new state law would allow and enable, and they could possibly own a home, uh, get into Cape Elizabeth as a home owner and enjoy the benefits of, you know, the the escalating value in real estate, but also all the other accoutrements of living in a, in a great town. So uh, Tuesday... August. So uh, the point is, I'm excited that this column is going to be published because I've pitched several columns, and this is the story, the you know the before story that that I'm I'm now at least willing to tell because of what what happened. Um, but but we'll save that for another day. But I'm just glad that this that this article that I've pitched is is going to be published because I had pitched several I think well written, timely, relevant op-ed pieces for the main voices that had been rejected by the previous editor, Greg Kessich. And this was a new editor, Siobhan Brett, who I was just 
psyched that oh good um you know uh my 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 uh, my uh name on the blacklist perhaps has been been removed so tuesday august 2nd i get an email at 12:13 p.m. from the assistant editorial page editor sarah who I might just add, I worked with for three years because I was a columnist for the Portland Press Herald for three years and worked with the assistant, so you know, the assistant page editor, and think highly of her and I'm grateful for the effort that she has made on my behalf. Um, and this is in no way <laughs> against her. I'm just simply telling you the story because I think it's it's interesting. Uh, so I get the email from Sarah at 12 p.m. on Tuesday saying that. Um, you know, your main voices is running Wednesday, which was the next day on August 3rd. So I got the email on Tuesday, August 2nd. And and then, you know, okay, good, you know, great. Um, I'm excited. And, and so <laughs> later that night, Tuesday, August 2nd, at around 6.30, I get this email from Siobhan Brett, who's the new editorial page editor. And she says... Um, I'll just, rather than trying to summarize, I'll just tell you what she said. She said, um, Hi, Cynthia, Siobhan Brett, the Press Herald here. Uh, Many thanks for the recent submission and your kind note. Um, You know, blah, 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 a few personal notes. And then she says, I'm writing to let you know that I'm afraid I'm not going to go ahead with the submission. In the end, for the same reason, I haven't gone ahead with a number of others pegged to the canals. It comes down to the difficulty in using one highly personal story as the crux of an argument. I know a good amount about the family, but where certain detail and content is called for, not enough. Now, I'll just remind you that the the story about the canals was very moving. I mean, very moving. But my column, (laughs) the only facts that I relied on about that family was that it was a, a sad story and they would not be eligible to live at Dunham Court. And those facts are based on reporting that was done by the Press Herald. It was the Press Herald that reported this family of three. And they really, I mean, they went out, they did an excellent job reporting on the story, and it caused a lot of public interest. Um, There was fundraising. And my point was that, yes, don't we want to build housing for these kinds of people? This family is a perfect example of the family that we want to build affordable housing for in Cape Elizabeth, and they wouldn't be eligible. So my inferring from the story that they wouldn't be eligible because they make more than $54,000 is not a big leap. It's actually a reasonable inference from the facts as reporting. They reported in the story. Both women work full-time at Cabela's. They reported in the story. The guy makes $1,400 in Social Security. Those, those are two, you know, Two W-2s and a Social Security, you know, 1,400 times 12 is more than $54,000. We have the document that says if they make more than $54,000, they're not going to be eligible to live in Cape Elizabeth at Dunham Court. That's the only thing about the canals in my column. And I was the only one whose column was about to be published the next day. And I might add, when it comes to this issue, the paper has just gone out of its way to editorialize about Cape Elizabeth and about me in particular and I'll just, you know, let's think about what Bill Nemitz wrote about the project, how everybody in Cape Elizabeth thinks they're so special. The editorial board wrote about the project. Greg Kessich, he was the one, though, who really, um, his piece, uh, The View from Here, um, 
I mean, he basically, he said that the people of Cape Elizabeth, he called the people of Cape Elizabeth, 10% of registered voters who put the Dunham Court project out for referendum, Greg Kestis referred to as a couple of loudmouths. Uh, and in his piece, The View From Here, Greg Kestich, you know, he wants to thank Cape Elizabeth for the lesson. He's really snarky. Um, refers to a few entitled loudmouths that have killed the town's first affordable housing development in a generation. That's just complete nonsense. Like, there's been this uh, mantra, oh, there hasn't been a, a low-income housing project, or there hasn't been an affordable housing project in Cape Elizabeth in 50 years. And that just, it's not true. Yes, there isn't a large for-profit low-income housing project, but that doesn't mean that we haven't been building affordable housing. Now, maybe it hasn't been at the rate that some people like, but there's a law already on the books that mandates every new development to have 5 or 10% of affordable housing. And there are people in town who, thanks to that law, are getting ahead. And that's what the people in town who are opposed to Dunham Court would like to replicate, because there's evidence showing that this model is not only efficient in the sense that public dollars aren't being used to pad the you know the, the pockets of developers but instead investing in its citizens so so Greg Kessich writes this piece um, he says that the developers pulled out because after going through an exhausting planning process with the town okay I that's complete nonsense the exhausting planning process was the developer having like zoom calls with our planner that there are no public records of several calls and then all of a sudden, the developer is at a workshop with a PowerPoint, and the next thing we know, it's being referred to the planning board to um, you know, approve an amendment to the zoning ordinance to allow for this project. They had already authorized tax dollars to draft up a TIF agreement. I mean, the develop it, it's taken less time for the developer to have pitched the proposal and then got the vote out of the town council that was later you know, sent out a referendum. It took that, that, that's a less amount of time than the time that the townspeople who collected signatures <laughs> have been waiting for this referendum. I mean, so this, this notion that Greg Kestich says that, that this poor developer went through this exhausting pl planning process is absolute nonsense. And, and then it says that even if they won, oh, God forbid, they have to defend this project at, you know, at the polls. And keep in mind, this was no organized partisan campaign in Cape Elizabeth that put Dunham Court out to referendum. This was a bipartisan group of volunteers across the socioeconomic spectrum who opposed the project because <laughs> it's a complete ripoff. It's for-profit low-income housing that excluded kids and families and excluded our workforce and was going to take up a big space on our town green and be, you know, cheap and ugly and just make a ton of money for bankers and developers. So if people want to... Um, you know, for that they can, but there's no reason to, to say that having that project go out to referendum is somehow we have to feel sorry for the developer. The developer in this case got the keys to the castle. When they pitched this project, they suddenly, by some unspoken, unwritten, unwritten rule certainly, got access every single time there was an email sent to the town council, they would get the email. They were forwarded the email. They got all the addresses of people in town so they could send out marketing materials and invite like to this, you know, fake marketing town hall that they pushed around all these, you know, artist renditions. And that's, that's the, like that, the exhausting process 
uh, that they that they had to go through, and not a single cent of private money was going to go into this into this project. So this idea that somehow these poor developers were spending all this time and money is just nonsense. It took like six months from the first Zoom meeting for for the thing to be like totally in the bag for a vote. And then the townspeople had 20 days to collect signatures to put it on a referendum. So uh, the fact that I, I'm telling you this because <laughs> um, that's why it was important for my piece to get in in the paper, I thought, because it offers up a rejection of this idea that the people in Cape Elizabeth are entitled loudmouths. And I'll just, one more thing, in, in one of the, the newspaper stories, the reporting, okay, that um, one of the stories re- reported by Kelly Bouchard specifically named me a- a- as being, you know, um, as somebody, you know, a opponent of the so-called affordable housing amendments in, in Cape Elizabeth and Dunham Court, and then says, and her house is like assessed, has the assessed value of $882,000 across real estate sites. So I, 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 you know, anybody who is reporting that story or editing that story, they left that fact, the how the assessed value of my house in there, because apparently you're supposed to draw some inference. I don't know what the inference is, but I think if you have a reference to me and some number that relates to my house value that you're expecting an audience to draw an inference from, it's unfair to question me defending my objection to this project because it won't include the canals and drawing an inference from the story that was reported by the paper. So I say to Siobhan, right, she tells me she's not going to print it. I write back that night, um, You know, every single story is highly personal. People vilified in Cape Elizabeth are people. Isn't it noteworthy that the family the paper highlighted as the poster child of the housing crisis would not be eligible at the project touted by the paper as the poster child of NIMBY? And I said, you should stick with the decision to publish it. And she didn't. (laughs) You know, she didn't. She basically, very nicely said, you know, basically, fuck you. Um, And so... uh, (laughs) you know, pretty frustrating. It's, 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 it's pretty frustrating. And it seems like, like somebody had whisked, you know, whispered in her ear, like, what is the big risk to put this column with my name on it in the paper? I wrote for the paper for three years. I wrote a really good column that was very popular. And yes, it generated a lot of interest and commentary. But that, in my view, is a good thing. But the main thing is because I have the facts, a, like a set of facts that just directly contradicts this narrative that has been spun on the pages of the paper. I submit the column. They say it's going to be published, and then they pull it back for this sort of bullshit reason. So Wednesday comes. It's not published. Um, (laughs) So I, you know, I wait. You know, Wednesday comes, and um, August 4th, I was like, all right, well, I'm not just going to sit here, right, and and stew about it, although I was just (laughs) incredibly frustrated by it by this point. Maybe you can't understand it, but someday I will just imagine that there's a context, a a story before and a story after, but just accept that I'm I'm frustrated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write about it. And so I Google, uh, you know, I write 
columns. I, I'm the owner of a media company and it includes this podcast and columns like the one that I submitted that's now on my website, syndicatemedia.net. Uh, and I and I have a YouTube show. So I was thinking, well, this is a good um, this is a good response. This is a reasonable way to respond to my frustration is express it. So I Google, um, this is the way I, I, I collect stories. I, I Googled Cape Elizabeth Housing News Dunham Court because I wanted to catalog all the times that the paper had sort of commented or that Cape Elizabeth had been mentioned because I felt at this point it was sort of about Cape Elizabeth. It just seemed unfair that they weren't going to publish this opinion piece supporting the people of Cape Elizabeth. And I'll just tell you, the first lines of my column um, it basically says someday people are going to thank the town of Cape Elizabeth for preventing the spread of bleak housing across America. Okay. So I was going to, you know, write about how many times Cape Elizabeth has been poked at and how they're our, not only our objection to the model at Dunham Court, the, the for-profit low-income housing projects that are good for bankers and developers and really bad for communities. Not only did I object and spearhead the collection of signatures, but I also attempted to create other affordable housing that was for moderate income <laughs> families. And I personally, as well as others, um, advocated in Augusta to push you know, the, the lawmakers to moderate the state housing reform law to include ownership and pointed out how these for-profit low-income housing projects are not necessarily good for families because they exclude kids if they're just for one bedroom and they exclude the workforce if the income restrictions are so low in towns and communities that aren't cities. So, you know, the, the state law was changed. Uh, and and so, I'm you know, I'm Googling this. And, and sure enough, this is, I guess... I'm burying the lead, but sure enough, I see um, this link to Maine Voices, Press Herald. The the you know heading is "Don't beat up Cape Elizabeth for rejecting affordable housing project," and then the, you you go to click on it, and it, and there's this page, you know, it says "Whoops," <laughs> and and then I see below at least three other websites with links to the article that traced back to the main voices column. <laughs> and there it is. <laughs> My article that has been edited and, and translated, obviously, a little bit differently. But m- my article uh, with the developer's artist rendition that the paper has. And it's, it's obvious that it's because even though Siobhan Brett said she wasn't going to publish the column, it got published. <laughs> it went out to the internet and was copied and distributed and now sits on sites, uh, at least three, probably more. And if you go to those sites, you can read my column, And there, except my name's not on it. And it's attached to the artist's rendition that was, you know, peddled, marketed by the developer. So on August 4th, I send Siobhan Brett, the new editorial page editor, who, like I said, is very nice. I mean, she did sort of say, fuck you to me and um, pound sand, but she did it in a very nice way. And so this is me pounding sand. 
On August 4th, I say to her in an email, your last-minute decision to pull the column was not without consequence. If you Google, and I tell her what I Googled, I'll see, you'll see the broken link, and you'll see the publication on several other sites. And I say at this point, I think, and I'd given this some thought, I said, I think it's only fair that you now publish the column with my name on it. You know, like that's, and that's not unreasonable. I thought that was a really fair way to just deal with it. Like you said you were going to publish it, and then you didn't, and you pulled it out at the last minute, but you didn't do it enough, and, and so it was published, whether it was inadvertent, a mistake, a digital marketing, whatever the mistake was, it was distributed, copied my work because of their error. And, and what's the big deal? I mean, geez, it's not like I don't know how to write. It's not like it's not well written. It's not like about a, 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 a very hot topic. It's not like I'm a, a not credentialed to write it. I was a town councilor in Cape Elizabeth. I was a state representative. I was a state senator. I was the United States Senate Democratic nominee. I was a columnist for three years. I mean, what is the big deal? <laughs> so she says, well, basically, again, very nicely. Well, we had a digital production error and, uh, you know, sorry, uh, call me. And so I did. I called her. And and she has a lovely voice, and she was very generous with her time. We talked for about 17 minutes. Um, I did record the call. I record things because I have recording equipment, and I'm, you know, a, in a media company, and I can't re- remember everything. And so I wanted to be sure um, that I tell the truth about what happened. So, um, but I, I did have a 17-minute conversation with her, and over the course of that conversation, I basically said, so even now, you know, even now that there's been this mistake, you admit there's been this mistake that has caused my article to be, you know, basically published, copied, distributed, without attribution to me, associated with this art that I can't stand, that I've objected to, at a time when, you know, there's this important public issue. I mean, the public deserves to have, uh, I think, the, the the issue approached from all sides and this is reasoned um support for the new state law and 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 a good reason why the cape elizabeth affordable housing amendments so-called are not good and the important and i think it resonates because it's based on this big story that was reported in the paper about the canals the only facts being that they're a family of three and the Cape Project is a primarily one-bedroom apartment, so they wouldn't be suitable necessarily for, but more importantly, they would be excluded because of income. So we have this conversation. She says, basically, no, and but she says, um, but I'll, I've, I get her to agree. I said, well, at least, this isn't an, an exact quote. This is me paraphrasing. I said, well, why don't you think about it? I said, you know, all I'm asking is, is, you know, is the professional courtesy of just publishing it now so that, you know, I can have credit for the work that I did. This is a new idea, by the way. This isn't something that other people have been arguing. This is, this was me. (laughs) I'm not saying that this is like the big short and I'm Michael Lewis. I'm just saying that this was me pointing out that this is a for-profit, low-income housing project that was publicly funded and the public cost far outweighs the public good and and that argument is backed up by numbers and 
And, and it's not like it's way out on a limb to think that there are some policies that are meant to do good, but simply don't. There's just this Saturday in the Wall Street Journal. If you read the Wall Street Journal, there was a very interesting article written by um, Roger Lowenstein about the economist Arthur Oaken. I think that was his name. Yeah, Arthur Oaken. He was a liberal economist, but he talked about leaky buckets. And there are just some public projects that are aimed at addressing income inequality, which, let's face it, that's what the housing issue is for, in my view, the lens that we should analyze the housing crisis, so-called, is that people without a lot of money are in a housing crisis. People who have money, okay, the higher echelons of society, there's no crisis. They have several homes. In fact, every single home that is offered up for sale in Cape Elizabeth is snatched up immediately. There's, I mean... So, um, you know, <laughs> this, these Section 8 housing, low-income housing projects, I, the intent behind these programs is to assist poor people. In our view, people like myself think that if we're going to expend $13.5 million to buy land for a private developer to for-profit to administer uh, this bloated government project, um, when instead we could use that money to build affordable housing consistent with the new state law that allows for low and moderate income. It's an important, it's just an important point that is, um, that I think uh, now is, is, I'm not getting credit for it. I'm not getting credit for the expression of my idea. I'm not getting, um, and more importantly, um, you know, the, the town of Cape Elizabeth, uh, be everybody who, uh, there's confusion already because of the town center affordable housing amendments coming up, uh, you know, for a vote in November, along with the state law. So this, um, all the more reason to, to, to not, uh, not publish. So I'm telling this story because I, oh, I, uh, I think it's probably a copyright infringement. I'm a lawyer, but I'm I'm not talking to you in that capacity. I'm I do civil trial work in federal court that I try to be very transparent about and keep separate from media work. That's why I don't talk about a lot of my cases. Um, and in this capacity, as the owner of a media company and a podcaster and the writer of the column that I sent to the Press Herald, uh, <laughs> you know, I I take it I don't take it for granted that I have. I have that right, but I, I do take it I take it seriously. And so the armchair lawyers who want to weigh in, please go to syndicatemedia.net and leave a, call, leave a comment, or I'd be curious. Let me know what you think. I, it just it seems unfair. Um, but like I said, the only thing I can do is tell the story. Um, there's a lot of, you know, the larger point is just the suppression of voices, okay? This, this, it's the opposite of being liberal. Like, it's the opposite. I don't know, you know, I, I call this podcast White Girl Blacklisted in Maine for a reason. And the reason is because I was falsely accused, maliciously accused, I think, at least amounting to recklessly accused of being racist for having a reasoned objection to a project that, um, by white people and who who can't see 
the fallacy of their own arguments and see the intrinsic racism they themselves are expressing by just assuming that they speak for black people or people of color or that black people, people of color, support Dunham Court. There's no basis to believe that. I mean, several, there's not a lot of black people and people of color in the state to begin with, and Cape Elizabeth is a reflection of that. But many of them signed the petition to put the so-called affordable housing amendments on the ballot because they're opposed to Dunham Court, because they recognize that paying a corporation to administer low-income housing is not what we want to do to help people in Cape Elizabeth achieve the opportunity of affordable housing. Affordable housing is different, and, and, and we have a right to do it differently. And um, and thank God we have the right to express ourselves. So thanks for listening, and um, <laughs> and I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Until next time, this is White Girl, Blacklisted in Maine. Cynthia Dill, take care.